I like that you want to do the homework though. That's good. I had started to, and then like it got away from me. Although I do agree with some of the ones we said, don't touch like the, uh, I think we stay. Don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. Yeah, I agree. I was going to take a stab at kind of like a preamble before we like really get into the, the meetup today. I don't know how that sounds to you. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah. I'm happy to be just ear candy for this episode. No, no, no. Oh, not for the episode. For the first, like, two minutes. How about that? All right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's right. It's a good. I'm all for it. I love that. I want to hear you go for longer than two minutes if you can do it, because I would love to riff off of it, and and I'll, I'll find ways to disagree with you to keep it interesting. Um, what Mike is saying is he would like to talk less, so if you can take up some more airtime... Just, so he can so he can work off his cheeseburgers. Well, it's that would the, be great. It's the edible he took to just before the cheeseburgers. Is that the, is that what the kids that are calling edibles today? Dick's cheeseburgers. So when he said, <laughs> "I'm going to start call," I'm going to I'm going to make that a thing. That's it's, like my new goal. Actually, Dick's is doing a collab with I with uh, Uncle Ike's. I, Ike's. So it, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just a weed burger. It's really good. Um, I can sell that. Welcome to Triple Core Games Podcast. Uh, I'm your hosts, Mike Schmidt, Trevor, and Dan. Everybody say hello. Hello. Um, Trevor, you had some thoughts. So before we kick off into some of the other topics, and thank you for putting together some actual show notes for us. That's extremely helpful. Um, I I know I'm, as the kind of pseudo producer, I've been struggling real hard to to get any of that down. So this is a a treat to have somebody that actually knows what they're doing take a stab at this. I wouldn't say I know what I'm doing, but uh, this has been like top of mind for me for the last six months, maybe a year. Uh, As we have launched video games recently, are thinking about launching new ones, are seeing what's happening in the industry, are seeing which games are launching and seeing success and which are not. Um, It's just a really interesting kind of open-ended question. And I kind of wanted to like dive into a couple different areas of what's going on. And I feel like maybe we can take some time and, and, and get to know, you know, some of the process and struggles that it takes for smaller developers to, to launch video games in this current ecosystem. And even from that perspective, you know, jump into, you know, what has changed drastically since, you know, pre-COVID into COVID and then to now, you know, on the on the, the marketing infrastructure or ecosystem for gaming. So I kind of wanted to, to kick off this podcast thinking through some like global thoughts around marketing, right? Making video games is an incredibly hard business. It takes a lot of incredibly intelligent people putting a lot of hours in and a lot of opportunity um, and a lot of just time and effort, right? And as you start getting towards the end of that process, you know, you have to kick off all of these discussions around how are we going to market this? Where are we going to spend our marketing dollars? How many marketing dollars do we have? Where are we going to put them? What's the new hot trending topic of of the day for marketing? And really, I th- as I'm stepping back and I'm thinking through what's happening in 2023, I think there's some large voids and some actual like incre- increasingly large pressure for smaller developers to get seen heard and played uh for their for their games the first really topic i want to jump into is the fact that e3 is gone now a lot of people will argue either way whether e3 was a good or a bad thing but from a business development and a and a games industry perspective 
the coming together of everyone in one location for three or four days to talk about games uh, became a hub for journalists and wannabe journalists and all of these websites that were popping up and really anyone in the social influence setting, uh, you know, influencers started to, to come to those uh, as we were ending, you know, 2019 before the 2020 pandemic. <clears throat> there was a lot of, you know, influencer led marketing as well happening at, at the event. And I, and I thought back through it and what this really keyed me off from was the, the Xbox showcase that just happened uh, last weekend. And I, I kind of counted back and I looked and they showed a total of 25 games. They showed 11 from Microsoft and 14 that were non-Microsoft games. And then I started to think more about the ecosystem. You know, Steam is seeing 100 plus games launch per day. Uh, there's other platforms, whether that's PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo. Uh, we'll leave phone out of this for now. And PC, other PC stores, GOG and, and Epic Game Store that are seeing lots of launches as well. So if you think about hundreds of games launching on a daily basis, how do you get seen? How do you get outside of the noise and the volume? And and E3 was a pretty cool place for that, for even smaller developers. There was an opportunity on the floor. There was an opportunity in some of the ancillary areas around E3 to show your game, to talk to journalists have the opportunity to not only be in the Xbox showcase, but maybe the PlayStation showcase or the Nintendo showcase or Square Enix or IGN or, you know, the other 30 or 40 booths that were available at E3. And sometimes all it takes is a couple journalists talking about your game or an influencer um, talking about it or, or something to that nature to really give you some opportunity, right, to cut through the noise on on marketing. And that just feels gone. Right. It just feels gone for the industry. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, arguments to be made, positive and negative on E3. I think that was that's a big negative of it not coming back, in my opinion. Yes, we still have things like PAX, but PAX has been nothing like it used to be since COVID happened. Uh, you still have Gamescom, which is a fantastic show, but the cost and the time and the length for American uh, developers to travel to Cologne to get set up to understand what's happening and to get your game shown very high expense right so if you're marketing a game and your and your marketing expense budget is not huge spending that money to travel to Gamescom is risky and what I'm basically trying to get at is you know during during COVID we had to find new ways to market games. And those new ways to market games were things like Instagram Reels, TikTok, uh, Snapchat. Uh, then we started talking about influencer-led marketing, and you know how can we see our game being played more on Twitch or more on YouTube? How do we get more short-form video on YouTube? YouTube Shorts started to come out, <clears throat> and these started to be decently effective. Um, and and as they became more and more effective. You know, the, the powers that be realized that there was a, you know, a strong capitalism play here. And then even influencer led marketing became more and more expensive for, for publishers to dive into. And then on top of that, users started to become accustomed to seeing sponsored play of games. And, and if you were watching your favorite influencer or you're watching your favorite, you know, Twitch streamer or YouTube uh, celebrity, 
you just knew oh, I'm not going to worry about this sponsored section. I'll wait until they go play the game I want them to be playing. And so there's, it, it's just really we're going through another evolutionary step where it feels like the smaller mid-tier studios are are just again having a lot more trouble breaking through that noise. Uh, lots of different topics that we could dive into here. I think the first being. And the biggest question I have is, is the publishing model for games still good? And what I'll bring up here is is this opportunity that jumped out. Um, and there's a couple articles that have been posted through VentureBeat and Bloomberg around the OTK <clears throat> influencer group. Asmund Gold's part of that. Soda Poppins part of that. Miskiff's part of that. Emeru, Tectone, etc. You know, they want to get into influencer-led marketing activities. They want to look for games. They want to publish games. They want to bring them to the market. The question being, is that the next place we see games being published or is there something else? I guess before we dive into that too, I agree with, I largely agree with everything you said. And and I have a lot of questions around it. And, you know, I'm not from the AAA game space. My history is very deeply in the mobile game space. So the death of E3 hits quite differently for you know me and companies I've worked at. I'd be curious from your point of view, who who is suffering the most? Like which studios or which developers are suffering the most from E3 disappearing? I think it's... <clears throat> Uh, obviously there, there's a level of like independent developers, right? Finding those indie darlings. There's some really great groups at Xbox. They have the Chris Charla group and ID at Xbox. I did work on that at one point. They have incredible eyes for talent. They are able to showcase games that coupled with Xbox game pass is still a viable option for kind of some smaller studios. Really where I think the biggest problem is, is studios that have already launched one game before. They've maybe seen a little bit of success or a lot of success. Now they've doubled down. They're making the next game that's bigger and better with a bigger group of people. And there's a lot more you know, money and risk on the line building that next game, whether it's a sequel, whether it's a brand new IP. Um, it's hard, but you don't have that same level. You know, you're coming into the market. You're like, well, we published one game already. We can do it again. How do we bring it to the market? And if you go back to the same playbook from two or three years ago, it doesn't work, right? And the marketing budget has to be bigger if you want to break through the noise. So a game mid-tier developer, you know, that that high single A into the double A space that is that is thinking about actually spending a million or two million or even three or four million dollars on marketing, which is a not so insignificant sum of money, has a really, really high risk to get that game seen. It has to be seen, right? There in the past those indie led developers, you know, they're, you know, a uh, vast majority of them are 5, 10, maybe 15 people, most of those contractors. And so they didn't have to sell hundreds of thousands of units to break even. These guys are now talking we're a mid-tier developer. We have 40 people or 50 or 60 people on staff. We need to think about our burn rate per month on top of that spending millions of dollars in marketing and we have to we have to somehow figure out how do we sell a hundred thousand units or two hundred thousand units or whatever the number is to even just break even that's that's a really scary prospect in my mind and if your cpms continue to get it more and more expensive and it's hard to break through the noise and and get some of that zeitgeist that you can get sometimes by 
a couple people picking the game up, uh, it, it's, you know, it just gets super scary in my opinion. Yeah. I want to I speak to the original question of like who feels the loss the hardest, I guess, I think was the way it was phrased for the loss of E3. And I'm going to go on the journey with that question because my answer is nobody. Um, but I have strong opinions wow. on E3. Yeah, I think I, I think I largely agree with what Trevor is saying, though. Uh, an old coworker of mine used to refer to the those sort of like I think second hit wonders or mid tier studios as a triple I studio, like the not quite big triple yeah, A, sure. but the triple I like indies, the ones who have already risen above the noise a bit and have now invested or gotten some more investment money or are trying to reinvest the profits of their first one where. You know, you look at games like Slay the Spire, which was two people in Ballard who found a bunch of success. How do they capitalize on that success a second time? It's with marketing dollars. And I think those are the kinds of companies and games that would be featured at E3 that would rise above the noise that would like because there's sort of a table stakes for the AAA games for the Activisions and the Blizzards, you know, of the world. And those games sort of like had to be there. But then every once in a while, because all the press was in one place, because there was that sort of reason to look at the game industry all at once there would be the journalists that were looking for the indie darlings that were looking for the the good story which is not you know whatever the gaming equivalent of fast 10 is right like it's uh <laughs> assassin's creed yeah exactly there was a uh homestar runner referred to it as ninja cat slap 2026 or something like that it just makes me laugh every time it's it's that kind of thing and so i think there is a piece of that that goes away, but I think that can be replaced pretty easily. Like my real take on E3 is that E3 was sort of that E3's E3's actual purpose ceased to be useful a long time ago, but because it was there, it still brought people together in a central location. And so you could count on it without having to like hit the pavement. If you were smaller over and over again, you could plan for your, your one E3, your GDC, maybe your Gamescom if you're big enough and like know that those cold convalescences were going to be there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality, yeah, oh, I go would, ahead. maybe, maybe we just, uh, maybe for people that don't know, like the original purpose for E3 was, uh, you know, your best buys and your Walmarts yep. and, and such would go in with open to buy dollars, actual money in hand to see what games were coming out for the holiday season and to make purchase orders. Like that was literally the reason E3 existed. Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. And like, and like yeah. the a good example of this, uh, this is, I don't know, this is like a old story, but THQ publisher THQ that went under at one point. Part of the reason they went under is their success was predicated on retail. What their core strength was, was getting games placed at the end caps at game stops and not just distribution, but placement, you know, the end, end caps in the aisles at Toys R Us and GameStop and probably, you know, Walden books back in the day or whatever the heck it was, right? Like, um, and, and like once that, this is similar to what you're saying, but that there was an evolution where that competency ceased to be as important with the advent of digital download. And I think what you're seeing with E3 is that it hung on because it was big and it was in LA and it was flashy until the larger publishers were just, just realized they didn't need to be there. They could film their own thing. They could get as much coverage on, streaming platforms they could get as much coverage on youtube as they did by going to an la convention center and spending a bunch of money and so yeah with dollars but but again this is you had to spend money oh yeah they still have to spend money like let's not say that they're saving money by not doing e3 they're just spending it on themselves that my counter argument to what you're saying dan is from so my side of the business is business development yep. publishing marketing right it's how do i go see as many games as i can in one location as efficiently as possible. And what 
like I'll give you an example of what I would do for E3. I would show up on Sunday. I'd go to the the Xbox showcase. That was my Sunday. Then, you know, that's that's that day. The next day is the was the Sony show. During the day from like 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. At, in 30 or one hour intervals, I would literally go between six different hotels, walk in. They'd have a game mm-hmm. like these small studios would have their game set up. We'd get to look, play, understand what was going on with their game. And it gave me, and I was one person doing this, right? It gave me the opportunity to see a ton of games in a four or five day period. I could see 20 or 25 games in a week, right? And have follow-ups and opportunity to talk to those games, whether that was with my time at Xbox, whether that was with my time at, at Hi-Rez. There was all the same people doing that at PlayStation, at Nintendo, at Epic, etc. So there was an opportunity for lots of different business development people to see lots of games in one section. I think it's less about what quote unquote people think of E3 being the show floor and the presence and the big boots and more about just the ecosystem of everyone in one location getting to show off their what they've been working on. Yeah, I totally buy that. Like I think uh, I've been going to E3 every year since I think 2005 until COVID and outside of that one year where there was like the bird flu or whatever. And the one year where E3 was canceled, there was like a couple of weird ones in there. And I think over the last 10 to 12 years, I spent 45 minutes on the show floor and the rest of the time was in the lobby of the JW Marriott. when I was either pitching games or being pitched games, depending on where I was at in my career, it basically was like a, a weak version of what Gamescom does organizationally, which is they have the, the whole B2B section. Totally rather than the B2C section. And like when my time at Gamescom, the B2B section was super valuable and the B2C section was sort of the thing that got people in the door, right? And so like, I I guess what I'm trying to say is like, this is where I think you're right about COVID. In the post-COVID world, like if and when are we going to return to that physical location, everyone's going to show up in one space? I don't know. And so the real question is like, I mean, E3... I, th- I think COVID hastened the death of E3. I don't think it caused it. Um, I, th- I think it was going to go that way anyway, because to your point, like it was 20 years past its original purpose and it was trying to valiantly hang on. But the question now is, how do you do that? How do smaller games? Because I would, I would also make the argument that even those smaller games, we're still playing a lottery ticket. Like you would show up, you'd be seen by 30 people. The odds of one of them picking you up were small, right? And it's still very relationship based and it's still very like, do you know folks like Mike Schmid and can they get you on a platform? Right. Um, and so like, what, well, what is, what is that version? You're not wrong. What is that version yeah, now? What is that marketplace? What is that B to C? That's a great question. Right. And so you have uh, the OTK guys doing their show. That was super cool. Lots and lots and lots of indie developers showing off really cool product. You have Jeff Keeley doing his show. He's doing multiple shows now, three a year, Summer Games Fest, Opening Night Live, and then the Video Game Awards. That one's a little different in my book because you have to pay to be on it. So it's a little bit more like marketing expense related than it is like, hey, we're showing you because we think you're cool uh, from that perspective. Uh, But I think there needs to be more, honestly. I think... You know, Microsoft did a great job showing off 14. If Sony showed off another 14 and Nintendo just had a direct this week as well, or maybe today, was it this morning? I haven't even been able to watch it yet, but there was another Nintendo direct today, I think. So I think it's just a combination of maybe a lot of opportunity, right? 
but I still think we're missing out on this this key business development function of everyone in the industry being in the same place at the same time. Although to be fair, uh, Mike can probably speak to this as well as I can, if not better. Like that was always the case for mobile gaming. These conventions were not helpful for mobile games. It was never how you got above the noise because mobile gamers didn't buy games based upon trade press. They bought games based upon word of mouth and app store recommendations while that was still a valuable thing, which your mileage may vary today. Spoken like somebody who truly never understood the the value of casual connect, Dan. That's that's what it is. Fair. And what was the other one? Fair. Inside social? Man. It was, yeah, casual connect, uh, pocket gamer connect. Don't forget that in several oh, yeah. cities now. Who have branched into large screen things because the pocket gamer portion of it wasn't doing well enough on its own, right? So, yeah. You're Not- right. I will admit, I don't understand the value. No, valuable for ad networks, for sure. Totally different, totally different world and totally different purpose, but yeah. Well, let's kind of transition then. Let's talk about this OTK show. Let's talk about influencers becoming publishers of games. Totally, completely different things. Someone being an influencer, someone, you know, proficient with Twitch and YouTube and, and making games shine. Very interesting and very hard thing to do. Let's we should all agree, like being a, a solid Twitch influencer or YouTube influencer and grinding it out and doing all the content work incredibly hard. Yeah. Does that translate to publishing? So there's two ways you can look at this, in my opinion. Uh one is to look at it from the perspective of how has marketing for games in general evolved? Like if you look at publishers back in the day. Um, publishers were offering visibility and the way they would do it is they had network channels or they knew how to do UA in the mobile space, or they understood how to build a big brand campaign, or they could build you a great booth at E3. And that's the kind of thing that could, you know, get your attention. I would argue one, one other key function mm -hmm. that they were in, they were financiers. Oh yeah, for sure. They, they finance the end of games. Even the ones in mobile that didn't a lot, like it was just like, hey, you know, we're going to take a rev share, but all we're really going to do is teach you how to be better. There was a ton of those that sprung up in like the mid 2010s, I think. Um, but like ultimately, I'm oversimplifying for effect, right? But like it was, if you sign with us, we will hasten your game to market and hasten and, and lengthen your reach, either through financing or through capabilities. You can make the argument today that the most effective form of marketing dollar for dollar is probably influencer marketing, right? Like if, if there are a lot of, especially for like Gen Z and things like that, there is a different credibility to the person that you trust and believe in and watch and are entertained by and their recommendations. So from that perspective, like the idea of an influencer led publishing team makes a ton of sense. It's like, how can we get you reach? Person A on our team has this many followers. Person B has this many. Person C has this many. We're going to talk about X, Y, and Z. And and that makes and that totally works. The flip side is, like, what do these influencers bring to the table besides their own platforms? And can they actually be a publisher in so much as the other things they can do? Can they be financiers? Can they be, uh, you know, can they educate game companies? Um, I like what, uh, what is it, Mad Mushroom that OTK is, is building, mm-hmm. which I, I don't yep. understand how this is not getting sued by Nintendo. But like I, um, I like what they were saying about also being part of the creative process, which was a big thing that was good publishers would do, which is as you're building your game, we're going to tell you how to make it streamable. 
how to make it like, you know, something that will be picked up by other content creators so we can expand reach outside of our own platforms. I think that's super valuable. The devil's in the details, though, right? Like we had a lot of great mobile publishers who were like, you know, looking for 80 percent splits on everything. Right. Because because reasons. Yeah. I think I think my biggest point is I think it's really interesting for them to bring their their like stable of creators to the table as a marketing avenue. I think my biggest point is that's not the only place people go to see games, right? They do have incredible reach, don't get me wrong, but you still have to put up some ads on Xbox and do the same thing on PlayStation and maybe I don't know, do a Twitch takeover or whatever it is, right? There's there's multiple keys to that to that puzzle and I think there's opportunity across the board um if they if they you know, hire and, and bring in the right crew to publish, but it's not just influencers. There's probably going to be a couple, you know, key industry vets that are going to come in and, and make it happen. Oh, and here's the rub. So this is the other way to look at it. And this is what I'm curious about, which is do these influencers risk their own credibility of their platform by going this route? Like if all of a sudden you're part of the publishing machine and all of a sudden you're only supporting or viewed as only supporting the things that are going to benefit you the most financially, which is kind of what they do anyway. But right now they get a bit of a pass. Like it is, I do wonder if they'll lose credibility as influencers because they're talking about their published games. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it, but part of the draw of influencers is that they're independent. They're their own voice. They're not working for a company. They're not fixing your reviews, right? Like they're, they're keeping it real. And if they're publishing the game, do they still get that same benefit of the doubt? Great question. What do you think, Schmidt? I was just wondering if you wanted my opinion on any of it um, or not. <laughs> I'm to be clear, I'm I'm doing really good just digesting my two cheeseburgers ate before this podcast. But I'm thinking a lot about like the product side of it. I feel like. Um, you know, everybody talks about the marketing side and, you know, the solutions uh, that people are proposing are interesting and different. I think influencers kind of running their own publishing is a possible solution, but will there be deficiencies on the product side? And like, what does the product side look like in these non-traditional publishing companies? Um, because as you know, it's like you, you have, if you have a marketing machine, like a good example of a marketing machine that works with a probably deficient product side is the hyper casual games market. And it, it really is like all marketing and the product is very light and very kind of shallow. And it's just meant to move people from one thing to another, to another, to another. So in this model, are we focus are they focusing enough on the product side to back that up or is it going to be another example of like these light experiences like we've saw for years with like celebrity integrations i remember this game shack down that was like it's an endless runner with shaquille o'neal and like full stop that was their product like it was they didn't really think about anything other than we have shaquille o'neal what can we slap it on and to alleviate some marketing concerns so i, I and this is not specific to any one company doing this i'm curious if that's going to be a, a factor here if, if people have really thought hard about how to pair traditional product values with the new age publishing model or what that looks like i mean it's an interesting question right I, there's some other anecdotal stuff in the market right midnight society dr disrespects a piece of that 
that's a game being built with an influencer as part of the company. Um, I think, I don't remember exactly, Dreamhaven was doing something, I want to believe, with Lyric, I want to say. I think they announced a game at one point. Uh, there's a lot of this kind of integration happening, and I think it's it's kind of a new, cool, like, extension of the marketing opportunity in games. But I think from my perspective, there's a lot of... Uh, there. The companies themselves obviously need to educate, you know, themselves on on what who they're getting involved with, right? Whether it's uh, Microsoft or a PlayStation funding or an EA or a private division funding. But then the next question is, okay, well, what if it's Mad Mushrooms or what if it's the next influencer-led group that's publishing? Is is the money and the opportunity just as good? Is it worse? Is it What's the opportunity, right? So I think having more players in the industry and having different ways to publish games is probably valuable. I think we just need to get to the other side of, you know, who's going to be the ones that create the most value. I, I think what you're really asking too, and I, I think I agree with this, is like, can these things coexist, right? Like, can these giant publishers and these influencer-led publishers and these different groups coexist? I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, and I think they, I totally. think they're going to need to, but I think you're going to end up with very distinct lanes for some of these things, right? Like certain types of games will only go to certain type of publishing efforts, and there it'll hasten the divide between like true AAA games and like real indie games. I think in some ways, um, which I think is okay potentially, but like also can lead to some bad outcomes depending on how that goes. So, yeah, I I'm I'm actually pretty bullish on the idea of an influencer led publishing team. But I think it's going to quickly like coalesce around very specific types of games and not it's not going to be a one size fits all. And part of the real trick of which ones will succeed is really do they know their brand well? Do they really understand like their own reach and their own crossover and what they can actually bring to the table? Uh, and then as they expand, can they bring on and will they bring on the more traditional sort of, you know, platform partnership folks if nothing else totally i think there's opportunity for all of it i mean we we saw over the last what four years or so the amount of equity that flowed into the gaming ecosystem to build new games and new companies and new opportunities so i think it's just generally good for the industry to also have additional pub publishing avenues Right. There needs to be more opportunity to publish your game and everyone's going to have their secret sauce of why they think the way they're doing it is best. And it's going to be, you know, it's just one of those things with, with newer companies. You just have to make sure that the people that you want to do business with or have, you know, the right synergies with you. I agree. I think we solved it. I feel like. I feel like we've solved it. Okay, <laughs> this is a really good discussion. We did it. Honestly, I uh, I think this is one of the ways we can add value into the world by debating this and actually talking through some of these. Because while we don't have the answers, I think it's interesting and and uh, and fun to kind of debate a little bit on what we think might work. And time will tell. Like we'll see if this this model works. Um, spoiler: It doesn't. But uh, time will tell. Uh <laughs> time will tell. Mike just told, but time will tell. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of other interesting things kind of coming into the world of gaming as well, right? This transition to everyone believing games need to be live services and always on and always creating content, and that is really hard, right? It takes a huge team of people 
to put out massive pieces of content over whatever period and time horizon you want to think about, whether it's monthly or weekly or quarterly or yearly. Um, but that also leads to all sorts of other questions. And, you know, can these publishers help with cross play and cross progression and live services and analytics and lots of, there's lots of different things that go into how to respond to your game these days, instead of like, Hey, let's just put it out there. See how many sales we can get. Right. We want to support the game. We want to support the studio. We want to support the game makers, the developers, the engineers and everything. And now it just goes down into a, another rabbit's hole of, you know, how do you efficiently use your your team to build content? You know, what, is it AI? Is it machine learning? Is it just efficiencies around how often you put new content out? Uh, there's just lots of questions in the gaming ecosystem right now around just putting out games and and how you support them over time. Yeah, and since Mike already told us it's not going to work, um, I think my thing I'm most excited about with this new model is just uh, just kind of what I am in general with these sort of disruptions in the industry, right? Like it's going to force probably every sector to be a little bit better or to look a little bit differently. It could open up more channels for distribution, sort of break the stranglehold that exists in certain cases. Um, which I think is always good for games, right? Like, you know, go back to the back to the late '80s, early '90s. Doom was created the way it was created because shareware was starting to show up, right? Like, so they changed the way they made the game, made the client more lightweight, made everything faster, made the levels smaller, so they could all be what was it? Shareware like a single disc at the time? Like, you know, like it was it was you know it had to be super small, very similar to kind of like small mobile payloads. But that spawned, you know, obviously a, a genre that I'm happy was spawned, given what I do today. Um, and so, like, I think things like this do tend to change the way we look at even design constructs as developers. And I think that's always positive, even if we, uh, you know, break some eggs along the way, which I expect we will. So, I mean, it wasn't that many years ago that the discussion around is this game streamable was not a design concept, right? Like, is this game fun to watch? Is it fun to play on stream? Can I talk about it? Does it have the right cadence that, that we, you play through, um, you know, there's lots of this crazy stuff. Esports, another great question oh, mark, wow, you yeah. know, some studios made the games because solely esports was the driver, right? The MLGs of the day. So there's there's lots of interesting inputs in publishing and marketing that have happened over the last 15 years of games that have actually changed the design output of product. Yeah, I will say though, Dan, to your, your zag a little bit on your question for live services, like I do think that live services do create a bit of a game developer feudal system. Um, mm -hmm. as, as far as like you have to have a certain war chest before you can even really consider one right like the two-person indie dev studio can't realistically launch and operate a live game um i mean depending on what you mean by live game like again i'll, I'll reference slave aspire as far as like yeah you can do updates and you can do dlc and you can do that kind of stuff but i'm talking about always on always delivering content always patching right very devops kind of model uh, it, there's the necessary conditions for that are just higher than they used to be, at least on PC and console, you know, maybe on mobile, there's more utility there. But even that, I still, uh, when I was at uh, Wizard of the Coast, I answered the question. It's like, I thought mobile games were just six person teams. And it's like, yeah, 12 years ago. Like, it's not, 
it's not that way anymore, right? It's, it's as big as Endeavor as any other live service game, so in success at least. Two-person studio can do it if they partner with Rally Here. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Rally Here. Uh, so, <laughs> no, but I think like that brings up an interesting point about the tools and uh, accessibility of live services games at this point. So if you have a big pool of money and you are a developer and you're going to go make your next game, like is there a responsibility to go build something that's more of a live service forever title because the return opportunity is so much greater than a you know, narrative driven premium title or something of that sort. I think there's two things there to consider, right? Like one is when you, I always, I always refer to this as Excel spreadsheet math. The Excel spreadsheet math on a live service game always looks better. Uh, The ceiling is higher. The, the, the return on investment is always better in success because you have that longer tail. You have more than just the one and done. It's not the old days of if I can't get above the noise and nobody buys this game, it goes to the bargain bin and all of my investment was wasted, right? Like that's the belief. That's sort of the draw to it. Um, The problem is the floor is also potentially lower in many cases, right? Like if you have to go free to play, if you have to go a certain way, if it's really more about making money on the back end, longer term LTV, et cetera. And the investment profile for that to really not be a lottery ticket is higher. Uh, to what you said before, Trevor, you need analytics. You need to understand player lifecycle. You need to understand like real true server tech and security and all of this stuff that just changes the nature of the game. So like, I would say it's it's just a riskier bet to go with the like the narrative game because if you can't get above the noise, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, you're not wrong there. I think, again... One of the key pieces that I always want to come back to is doesn't matter how good your publishing is, your marketing, your live service discussion, whatever it is, if your game at the core of its essence is not fun to play, people are not going to play it, right? Uh, Technically proficient game can sell zero copies and a janky, super bug ridden game that people just love playing might get a pass, right? Uh, it, this industry is is 100% predicated on consumers engaging with product, and that's perfect to be seen in the last six months, right? You we've had four games hit a billion dollars in in revenue, four Call of Duty, Hogwarts, which I guess you could argue argue is a humongous IP, so it has a lot of you know pull gravity towards it, uh, Zelda. I'm just assuming is probably getting close to that number. And then Diablo just came out and smashed $666 million in five days, right? These are massive opportunities. Now look at the other side of the spectrum. A team of four built a game called BattleBit, which is a 254-person FPS game, and it's 60,000-plus concurrence on Steam right now. That's incredible. That is, there's so much success to that model right there. If you think about it from an ROI per per employee perspective, the reviews are saying somewhere between potentially 400 and a 400,000 and a million units sold. A million units at 15 bucks a pop, you know, minus the fees that have to go out. That's a lot of money for four people to be making in days. So there's still opportunity to be seen. There's still opportunities to shine. Um, there's still opportunities to get through the noise. It's and any size team can make a hit. Has always been my 
my mantra in this. What was the uh, metric that our, our former colleague, your current colleague, Dan, actually, Jeremy Rich, used to use for uh, ROI per employee? It was like Ferraris per employee, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was Ferraris per employee. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like Supercell having a much higher Ferrari per employee ratio. They had like a 90,000 Ferrari, Ferrari per employee. It was, it's basically, <laughs> a, it's like a fun, it's a more fun way of calculating cost per or revenue per head. Revenue per head. Yeah, but but nice. then then like divide it by Ferraris because that's way more fun than numbers. I just think it is. Speaking of fun with numbers, uh, kudos to Diablo for cutting the counting off at five days so they could count stop it at six hundred sixty six million dollars. I mean, cheers. Well, marketing was just waiting for that. They were like, whatever day it hits six 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 is the day we, we, we made this in out. five days and forty three minutes for whatever reason. Right, like that's yeah. where we that's where we always count to. Uh, the, la- the last thing I'll say, though, on the live service game, too, is I do think that there is a very real movement to more live service games as opposed to standalone games because of the importance, especially, again, with a younger audience of community, right? Like building a community around game, building a zeitgeist around game, building a social structure. Like I, the number of younger folk I know that play Fortnite the way that like back in New Jersey, we used to go to the mall. It's basically the same thing, which is like, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go to the mall. Why? I don't know. There'll be people there. I'm going to log into Fortnite. Why? I don't know. There'll be people there, right? Like, like you're going to talk to... You can buy costumes in either place. Exactly, right? <laughs> and the mall, they were only at Hot Topic. But like, it's it's just one of those things where I think I think it's harder to do that in a in a non-live service game where like, or at least a non-like cooperative game or even multiplayer game. Like Zelda, I think is going to be the exception because, but Zelda's got what 30 years of community building at this point that does not count it's like well pokemon did x stop it pokemon is the exception that proves every rule right like um it's it's one of there's a couple of brands out there like you mentioned um you know harry potter and despite all of the turmoil around that particular ip it's still a massive global like fan base right so there's there's things around that community where it can feed into an existing community but if you're trying to create one i think there's at least a school of thought that is, if you're not making a world that inspires that community, if you're not building a product that inspires that community um, by by cooperative play or competitive play, then you are leaving too much on the table. You are not doing what the communities are asking for, what the gamers are asking for. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Totally. And I need to figure out what uh, what the most optimal Ferraris per employee ROI metric is. Yeah, it's probably changed now. I bet Ferraris cost more than they used to. So our, all of our metrics Especially are probably out of do. date, Mike. Yeah, we're going to have to re- redo that entire deck and update all the numbers on it. Let's get right on that, actually. I think it's we should. We should. I'll, I'll, I'll get Jeremy on it. He'll all appreciate right. the ask. Do you, do you want to switch over to uh, another topic before we call it? I mean, we hit almost every topic I wanted to hit on today. There's some you know, great stuff happening in the industry. We got small games hitting big. We got big games hitting big. There's Steam Next Fest going on right now. Tons of great demos to go try out there and lots of different genres. Gaming is just in an exciting time, in my opinion. I know there's always going to be growing pains. This is an ever-growing industry. And I'm just excited to see what happens over the next six to eight months. It's a very positive spin on it. I like it. There's a lot of doom and gloom out there, and I feel like we can say game, games is safe. We're, we're fine. The, there is a lot of doom and gloom out there, but just look at the past like 12 months of releases and like what we know is coming in this fall. I mean, like obviously I watched Incredible. the Sony showcase and I read through the Microsoft and, and everything else and just like 
the number of new titles that are interesting or high quality, like I really feel like the industry development industry, at least has recovered from quarantine and recovered from COVID and is kind of back to full speed in a lot of ways. And you're seeing that come to fruition now. I mean, in, in a, in a 30 day span, we got, you know, tears of the kingdom and Diablo four and, we're getting Final Fantasies and something new from Bethesda, right? Like, there's a bunch of really exciting, cool stuff coming out um, in just a 12 month span. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of with Trevor. It's exciting times. You did leave out Chapter Four, Season Three of Fortnite. Um, I did. I did leave that out, and I apologize for that. I also left out from last year, like God of War and Overwatch <laughs> Two, and like there's way too many. Like, you know, there's cool shit coming. Uh, I agree. I've actually been. And what should I go home tonight and play? If I have time tonight and there's so many demos, so much shit going on, I, I would love a recommendation from one or both of you. Obviously, you should play Destiny 2 Season of the Deep, um, which is li- li- live and active right now and super cool. Hell yeah. The water. Let's uh, assume I've already been like deep in that. What else you got? <laughs> I, will, I will admit most of my time is in Tears of the Kingdom right now. Um, and that is partially because with a four-year-old, I can play more frequently on a Switch handheld than booting up a PC or a, a large screen console. Um, so that's where most of my time is gone. And I'm probably like, and you know, 2% of the way into the game. And I feel like I've been playing for a thousand hours. It's, it's large. Awesome. Give me something more interesting, Trevor. More interesting. Uh, I'll give a shameless plug to some great friends of ours that are building a new game that's in the Steam Dev Next Fest right now. Their demo's awesome. Star Siege Dead Zone. It is based on the Good Star name. Siege IP. Um, it is a corridor extraction shooter. So think like Dark and Darker meets Halo. It's pretty cool. It's really fun. They're having a great time building it. Uh, I think the game really shows well, and I have a lot of good friends that are over there working on it, so definitely should check it out. I like the idea that we could end a lot of these with like recommendations for a new game to try or like an old game to try. I like, like it. Maybe we should make that just the norm. No, that's what I'm saying. I, I think I think we could because I got a lot. I got a lot of opinions. No. Um, like, if you want to go back to an old game, if you've never played it, I don't know if either of you ever played 80 Days. No. Nah. It was done by, uh, not. what, Inkle, I think, back in the day. It was it was partially a, uh, it was partially a game. It was Around the World in 80 Days is what it's based on, but it's one of the best branching narrative games I've ever played. It's on Steam. It's also on mobile. Oh, okay. I did play it on mobile. Yeah, I, remember, I wasn't sure if that was the same game. Okay. Yes. Super good. Still holds Sweet. up. If you haven't tried it, like somebody mentioned, uh, Mike, I think you mentioned, like, standalone narrative games. It's a good one. It's fun. You can sink okay. a bunch of time into it. We'll give it really well put together, Sounds in my great. opinion. Fine. There's mine for today. Thanks, guys. This was fun. I, I burned off all of my cheeseburger while, while we talked about these issues. So Good. With your burst of energy, you can spend the next 15 minutes thinking about what and when our next draft is. Ooh. Ooh. Great mm-hmm. question. I feel like maybe we need a special guest for yeah, that. I think we do. I think we do. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's think about it, guys. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Cheers.